welcome to the Non-Servium Podcast, a project dedicated to exploring the world of anarchist and anti-authoritarian ideas. Join us in our conversations with radical voices in precarious times. To find future episodes, make sure to subscribe on Stitcher, SoundCloud, and other places where podcasts are found. If you'd like to become a contributing member of the show, please consider becoming a patron at patreon.com slash media. Every little bit counts, and we appreciate all the support we can get. Remember to like, share, and subscribe to help spread the word, and so you can stay updated with our most recent episodes. Thank you for joining us. We hope you enjoy. Hey there, everyone. Welcome to the Non-Servium Podcast. I'm your host, Joel Williamson, and today I'm joined by two people who are doing some very interesting work. Fox and Sean are anarchists and activists who co-organize the Please Try This at Home conference, which is a collaborative conference about the intersections of radical bodily autonomy and biotechnology. Sean is a scientist and technologist with experience in chemistry, material science, data science, and machine learning. He is also probably a hacker of one or more types, although he has a complicated relationship with that label. Fox is a burned-out SJW turned anarchist and community organizer. They grew up on the internet in the 90s and still believe in the dream of technology that's accessible, liberating, and free. Fox and Sean, welcome to the show. Hi. Hello. Thanks for having us on. Of course. How are y'all doing? Not too bad. Yeah, could be worse. Cool. Are you uh, all caffeinated up, ready to go? Working on it, yeah. Like good <laughs> transhumanists? Mm-hmm. <laughs> like good 8, you know, 9 p.m., fourth cup of coffee. Fair enough. Am I a transhumanist if I drink vodka? Like, is getting drunk like an example of transhumanism? I don't know. Do you think alcohol is a nootropic? Maybe not a nootropic, but it could like make you sort of looser and maybe more articulate like after two drinks or something. Maybe it goes downhill after that. (laughs) How's that working out for you? I mean, I'm doing all right right now. I got it's like herba mate mixed with vodka, so I'm feeling all right now. Wait, wait, is it like the canned herba mate? Yeah. (laughs) Okay, you're definitely a transhumanist. (laughs) (laughs) Hell yeah. All right. Well, I guess we might as well jump right into it if y'all are down. Yeah. Let's go. How did each of you become interested in radical politics? So I can say for me, I've been interested in radical politics actually a lot longer than I've been interested in science or technology or any of the stuff in my intro. I was an angsty teenager who skateboarded badly and listened to the dead Kennedys. (laughs) (laughs) I had like some introduction to radical political ideas from um, kind of those countercultures. Probably uh, around the time I was like 14, 15 maybe. I um, started reading some uh, radical texts. The two that I remember making a distinct impression on me were uh, Manufacturing Consent by Noam Chomsky and Evasion by Crime Think, uh, which like both impacted me in substantially but in different ways. Cool. And how about you, Fox? There's a few different ways that I could tell this story, but I mean, I think it really just boils down to like growing up queer in the early 90s. It was just sort of inevitable. I've been 
involved in a wide range of kind of political movements over the course of my lifetime. And um, I think my politics have really mostly just been influenced by the people and ideas and movements that I've encountered and been sort of gradually evolving over time. I think I just, I had some political intuitions as a young teenager that led me in a kind of radical direction. And then as I've gotten older, I've encountered more actual political theory that that gave me some grounding for things that it felt like that I was already doing, which I think is a common story among anarchists. You know, I think it's like uh, when I was a kid, I, I just sort of had a, a general sense of not wanting to to follow the rules. And then and then as I grew up and read books, I was like, oh, other people feel this way, too. <laughs> <laughs> Very cool. Was there any was there any thinkers or uh, like political movements or anything like that that sort of set you over the edge? I think there were a handful of moments. I mean, so when I was younger, I was pretty involved with just kind of like broad-based social justice politics. I started coming from a space of of organizing around like queer liberation and reproductive justice. I did some work in like domestic violence, victim advocacy for a while, you know, stuff around kind of like people who are developing consent culture stuff. And then when I got into my early 20s, I started reading uh, more about like anti-racist politics and kind of getting into prison abolition as a core aspect of thinking about politics in general. I've always been pretty involved with trans communities and Mm -hmm. that's a really shaping influence in my life. I think another thing is, you know, I mean, from the time that I was a teenager, I've been I don't know, just kind of like interested in thinking about interpersonal power dynamics in interpersonal relationships are really the core of my politics. And I think that there's a way in which my my intuition has just always been that, like, I don't want to tell anyone else what to do. Yeah. And I don't want to control anyone else or be controlled by anyone else. Mm. Um, From that, I think it, it only makes sense that you eventually sort of reverse engineer like, well, we have to destroy the state. So (laughs) (laughs) y'all have a really cool conference that you put on. It's called the Please Try This at Home Conference. What inspired y'all to start doing it? So the genesis of Please Try This at Home is it was actually sort of accidental. So I have been friends with William Gillis for a while, who is the director of the Center for Stateless Society, but also is kind of like the loudest and uh, most visible trans anarcho-transhumanist on the internet. Mm-hmm. Um, I have heard him referred to as the anarcho-transhumanist <laughs> on the internet, although I would like to think that I am also one of those. But he was just going to come out and visit, and I was like, hey, you know, as long as you're coming out, why don't we have you do a talk at the at the info shop where I am involved? You know, and, and then I was like, oh, well, Gillis is going to come. We should get this other anarcho-transhumanist who is in Columbus to come down, and maybe they can do, like, a, a panel. And then, you know, it, from there, it just kind of spiraled out. Like, oh, well, what if we get this other person? Oh, well, why don't we just, like, you know, rent out the glitter box theater and make a half-day event out of it? So it essentially turned from, I want Gillis to come to the big idea and talk about his zine into, like, this monstrous... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> event that was totally out of scope for what I had the capacity to be doing at that time, but we pulled it off. Yeah, and so I think from that, then what we're currently doing grew, which is to say that the the kind of central theme of all of these things is that uh, I'm really interested in, and I think that some of the other people that I've been co-organizing with are really interested in these questions of what are the, the political and ethical implications of the technology that we're currently developing 
um, and also the technology that's already been developed insofar as it is interfacing with our own biology and the biological world around us. And a lot of people seemed interested in digging into that question. And so we're, um, we've been working on reaching out and finding lots of different people who have different perspectives on those issues and trying to bring them together. And we're going to do another conference this year. And um, hopefully it'll, it'll be a, a little bigger and better and more interesting and more diverse and more fun and more crazy wild shit will happen um, because we're, we've had a little more time to organize it. So, yeah. Fox, if you could give us a succinct definition of what the Please Try This at Home conference is, how would you define it? So Please Try This at Home is an ever-evolving effort to connect people who care about the intersections of technology, biology, and liberation. I've been describing it to some people as the queer anarchist biohacking conference. I think it's a bit larger than that. Ultimately, it's a space to ask questions about what developing technologies mean for the future of our relationships to our own and each other's bodies. I think there are people working on similar questions in a lot of different spheres whose experiences and perspectives could benefit greatly from each other's work, but who would have no reason to run into each other otherwise. So my personal hope with the event is to throw some of these people in a room together and get them talking to each other. Cool. Just in case anyone is unfamiliar with the term, what is biotechnology and biohacking? Yeah, so I can speak to that. So I guess to explain biotechnology, I think you kind of need to understand at kind of a fundamental level what technology is, right? And to me, technology is stuff that we make to do things, right? It's like that simple. And biotechnology is technology that is made of or which interfaces with living systems. So then, like, again, I think to, like, understand biohacking, I think you need to, like, understand hacking, right? And hacking, to me, at its best, at least, is just kind of creating without asking for, like, permission or forgiveness. And biohacking is applying that ethic to biotechnology. What are some of the shortcomings of the mainstream biohacking movement? The mainstream biohacking movement is a pretty broad umbrella, right? There's a lot of different things that different people mean when they talk about biohacking. There's like the DIY bio community, which usually involves genetic engineering of organisms in molecular biology type techniques. There's kind of the grinder body mod type community who tend to be into things like magnet implants and RFID chips and whatnot. And then there's also like people who drink butter in their coffee for some reason that I don't really understand. But um, <laughs> three of those groups refer to what they do as biohacking, you know, and I think all three of those components of the mainstream biohacking movement have different shortcomings. So I think one, I think one thing to mention is that when we talk about the mainstream biohacking movement, I think that a, it's important to be clear that like that is a, a very, very tiny movement, as it were. And it's a self-described biohackers, whether pe- they're people who are describing themselves as biohackers because they are, you know, implanting magnets in their fingers or they're describing themselves as biohackers because they are, you know, doing kind of like DIY biological research outside of a, an institutional lab. They're a really narrow band of the people in the world who are 
navigating a biological relationship between biology and technology. And I think that I agree with Sean that kind of like each of these little spheres of the self-identified biohacking movement has kind of like some pros and cons to it. I think one of the overarching problems or areas in which that whole scene could improve is just an awareness of how much larger the space is. And I think that's one of the things that we're interested in doing with this event is really just kind of expanding people's perspective on like what biohacking actually involves. And so we want to, to draw people's attention to and highlight and center voices and perspectives around futurism that are, are not typically seen at your average self-described biohacking thing. So we're talking about things like xenofeminism, Afrofuturism, anarcho-transhumanism, and also just like people who would never maybe identify themselves as biohackers, but people for whom kind of doing experimental DIY, figuring out their relationship between their embodiment and technology is just a day-to-day -day survival skill. Um, so queer folks, disabled folks. Um, I think one problem that I see with the mainstream biohacking movement, such as that as a thing that exists, is that this the kind of like self-described biohacking scene is a pretty narrow band of the population of people who are doing both practical work and intellectual work around the question of what it means for biology and technology to be interfacing with each other. And I think there's a, there's a huge amount of perspective that's missing from the conversation on biohacking, uh, whether that is DIY, bio people doing kind of like biological research outside of an institutional lab, or it's this sort of, you know, grinder, recreational cyborg people putting, you know, implants and magnets in their hands or what have you, is just a kind of a narrow hyper-focus on like a really small subset of the world of like what I would consider biohacking, which, which includes people for whom navigating the relationships between technology and their own biology or the biological world around them is not just kind of like a, a fun hobby or a, a experimental process, but is actually like a day-to-day -day survival necessity. Okay, cool. I uh, actually have a couple other thoughts on that please. question. Please. So something else I think is worth mentioning, right, is that the biohacker culture, such as it is, inherits to some extent from the hacker culture that preceded it. And, well, I think hacker culture has some really amazing features to it. I also think that it's, like, loaded with a whole bunch of toxic garbage, some of which has seeped its way into the biohacking movement, you know? Uh, some of those things that you kind of saw in the, like, the old school so-called hacker cultures were, like, a kind of gleeful amorality a tendency to create cults of personality around certain figures, a lack of inclusivity for, like, everyone who wasn't, like, a cishet white guy. You know, those kinds of problems. Tolerance for abusive behavior of various types. Many of those problems that I see in the older school uh, hacker movement, I think, have successors in um, some elements of the biohacking movement. And I think those are also things that we think need to be addressed. 
Right. I, I think also just by and large, the biohacking movement is first and foremost a tech scene. And, you know, it may be a slightly scrappier tech scene than whatever's going on in software right now. But like, it's still pretty focused on like, let's figure out what kinds of cool shit we can build. And thinking in a serious way about the political and ethical implications, both positive and negative of that work is just often feels a little bit like a tacked on afterthought. I think you'll go to your typical biohacking event. And a lot of what you'll see is 90% cool show and tell. And maybe like one panel discussion with a couple of people talking about bioethics or, you know, maybe one session, which is let's try to do some, have some kind of like intersectionality oriented conversation about this technology. But yeah, it's like tech first and politics if we have time to fit it in. And that's, I think, uh, inside out from what I'd like to see happening. The good news is though, like the biohacking movement is comparatively young, right? And like Fox mentioned earlier, like comparatively small. So there is a real opportunity, I think, if, you know, we can build the type of coalition that we're trying to build among people who are doing sort of ethically centered uh, work in these spaces. I think it's very possible to like steer the discussion in the direction we'd like to see it go in. I think that's one of the things we're hoping to do with this conference. I think that the worst case scenarios for biotechnology going the way of Silicon Valley are extremely gruesome. And so I'd really, really like to not see history repeat itself. And so, yeah, like Sean said, I think that the biohacking movement has inherited some of the the problems of the, the software hacking movement that make it kind of vulnerable to being exploited by the state and corporations. Um, but I also think that we have more perspective to be able to see that happening. And so hopefully that's something that we can bring people's attention to in an explicit way uh, and maybe go a different direction. Yeah, very cool. And I'm, I'm glad y'all are doing that. There's an old anarchist slogan that says, no gods, no masters. And on your website, it says, no gods, no experts. What does this mean to you? Kind of a central theme of the first Please Try This at Home event was kind of trying to dismantle the sort of cult of expertise that we see in our society. Because like, if you've had the opportunity to like interact with experts in anything at any point, um, <laughs> you probably get it. They're like not a super impressive bunch in my experience at least. You know, there are exceptions, I guess. But yeah, by and large, I haven't been impressed with the experts that I've met. But like our society says that the experts and not us are the people who should make uh, the decisions about what happens with our bodies. And we disagree. I think it's pretty cool that the Please Try This at Home conference is somewhat of a charitable event, too. We explain how this event is financed and what the money goes towards. So uh, Please Try This at Home is like a pretty much 100% DIY. Um, kind of bring your own 
content built from the ground up by basically a bunch of anarchists who just are interested in these questions. And we, you know, we certainly don't have any kind of institutional backing. We're not affiliated with any kind of organization or nonprofit or anything. So last year, we just did the conference on a budget of zero dollars. Um, some of the people that were involved in the organizing kind of threw in, like, you know, bought note cards or brought food or something. So last year, the space that was available for us to host the event in wasn't at the time wheelchair accessible. And that seemed pretty counter to the ideas that the event is based on. But at the time that space was trying to raise funds to be able to like fix this problem with the building and put in ramps. And so what we did was uh, rather than having any money that was related to the conference, we just asked people who were coming to the conference to donate to the building's accessibility crowdfund. We're trying to do some uh, fundraising, right? Primarily through crowdfunding, probably more details on that soon, hopefully. The money we gather, we're going to use primarily to bring in contributors from out of town who otherwise might not be able to make it and uh, to try to make the event accessible on as many axes as possible. We almost certainly won't have money at the end of it, but if somehow we do, I'm sure we won't keep it because that's not really our thing. <laughs> we'll find some um, worthwhile and related cause in the area to contribute to. Last year's conference was also organized in in conjunction with a fundraiser brunch for an organization here in Pittsburgh that provides free holistic health care services to members of the community who otherwise wouldn't be able to afford them. And yeah, we kind of collaborated with that group. So the big idea is an anarchist bookstore uh, and info shop here in Pittsburgh. And one thing that the big idea does is on a regular basis, it hosts these fundraiser brunches for like other organizations in Pittsburgh that we think are doing good work. And the way that that works is that the members of the collective and other people from the community will make food and then people will come and it's like sort of a sliding scale donation. You come, you eat brunch and all the money that's raised by the brunch then gets donated to the organization. So some of the organizations we donate to are like uh, Casa San Jose, which is like a, an immigrant advocacy organization. We did one recently for um, like the Street Medics Collective. Um, we've done them to raise money for court support money. Uh, like they did one to raise money for um, people who were arrested at J20. There's the, like a local bail fund that people have been setting up. Basically just radical projects in Pittsburgh that could could use a little bit of a, of financial support. So last year... What happened was that the Please Try This at Home conference was an event that was being hosted kind of under the auspices of the big idea. So it was sort of like the big idea in conjunction with a couple of other groups in Pittsburgh were helping put on this conference. And then on the same day, the big idea also hosted one of these community fundraiser brunches for an organization here called the Three Rivers Free Clinic for the People. And the People's Free Clinic is a monthly holistic healthcare clinic that happens. It's on the first Wednesday of every month. And it's just it's just practitioners from the community will come and will provide free massage therapy, um, acupuncture, tai chi, nutrition counseling, meditation, just sort of like holistic community-based healthcare and medicine. It's it's a walk-in clinic and it's just essentially available to 
anybody who walks in for free. So that clinic needed some financial support in order to keep operating. And it seemed like like a good match. I, th- I think this is like one of the points that I'm kind of trying to press with this conference is that biohacking and thinking about the anarchist aspect of kind of like autonomous decision-making about our bodies and our healthcare, that that is, that is like an underlying principle that I think is relevant both to the biohacking movement and to the kind of like community-based holistic healthcare and, and alternative medicine sort of sphere. And so we did both of these events on the same day. We did the brunch in the morning and we did the, the on-conference in the afternoon. And so we like encouraged people who were coming to one to attend the other and vice versa. So some people came to the brunch and donated money to the, the clinic and then stuck around for the conference. Or some people came because they wanted to come to the conference, but they came early and they got brunch. That was what that was about. And then the second piece of this was we asked people who wanted to support the conference specifically, like the conference just had a little crowdfund and we said, you know, hey, this event is free to attend. Um, we want to make it as accessible as possible. And so, of course, like we're never going to charge anybody to come. But if you would like to make a financial contribution to the conference, please donate that to the crowdfund. And I think a little bit of it got used as like a uh, a donation to the space for them letting us use the space for the conference. And then the rest of it got donated to that space's fundraiser to put in a wheelchair access ramp. So this year, because we're having it in a space that's already accessible, money that that gets donated for the conference is going to be used, A, again, probably to make a donation to the space that is offered to host us. And then any other money, ideally, we would like to use to be able to facilitate, um, help cover the expenses of people who would otherwise not be able to attend. Like, ultimately, the goal is to try to make the space as accessible as possible for as many people as possible across as many different kinds of like vectors as possible. And so one of that ways of making it accessible is just to make sure that it's completely free to attend. And another way of making it accessible is to say, look, even if you would like to be involved and participate and help kind of co-create this space, but there are still material barriers to you being able to do that, even with it being free, then like, we'd like to be able to try to help cover people's travel expenses um, or, or otherwise make it possible for, um, especially for like marginalized folks and folks who, whose voices are often not not present in these conversations uh, where, like I was saying before, I, I think it's like mission critical that those perspectives are being are being acknowledged and centered. Yeah, we'd like to be able to facilitate those folks as being able to participate. Well, that's pretty cool. I really like that. I don't think I've ever put on an event that was quite as cool as y'all's, but I have organized a lot of different anarchist events and have found it to be sometimes overwhelming. I wanted to ask you, what's the key to effective organizing? Get somebody else to do it for you. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I don't know. I've been organizing things for a long time, and I, I don't feel like I have a good answer to that question either. I can talk about a few things that I think I've learned based on how the event went last year that have helped me think about how I want to do things differently this year. So I think the biggest mistake that I made last year is that I just... I, I took on too much myself in too short of a time frame, and I kind of let the process of organizing the event just like totally consume me, and it, it made me a pretty miserable person to be around for about three months. And I think the other biggest mistake is that, you know, I, I basically limited my outreach about that event to 
like people that I already knew. And the result is of this, of course, is like, if you only reach out to people who you're already connected to, then, you know, I, I ended up with a, you know, it, it ended up being an event full of people who are pretty similar to me, both politically and demographically. And, you know, that's okay. But I think if we're interested in building a movement, then that's not going to happen by just like throwing a cool party for a bunch of people I like who already agree with each other. So a couple of things that we're doing differently this year is one, we are giving ourselves a lot more time to put the event together. And so rather than trying to kind of throw it together in the space of six to eight weeks, we've been talking and working on it for several months now, and we have about four or five more months um, until it's actually going to happen. And so that's giving us more time to do uh, kind of cast a wider net, connect with more people, do a little bit more thinking more about the logistics of how to make it more accessible, connecting with other organizers and organizations and people who can contribute ideas and, and perspectives and resources that would not have occurred to us if we were just doing it on our own. Yeah. And most importantly, you know, I feel like unlike that last year, I feel like I'm really working this year as part of a team of people who are all kind of like invested in wanting to see the event uh, happen for their own reasons. And that makes it feel much more sustainable. So I guess the the short answer is like, I think the key to effective organizing is not doing it by yourself, both for logistical and for philosophical reasons. What are a few of your favorite topics that might be discussed at the event? I think that's a little bit hard to predict right now because the nature of the event is that the people who are participating in the event are going to be the ones who kind of like bring the content. We could talk a little bit about the kinds of things that we discussed at the last event, just as, you know, hopefully a sample of the types of things that we'll see at the next one. Some of the things that we discussed last time were microethics as they apply to DIY medicine, regulatory bioethics in the United States and abroad, <laughs> intrauterine devices as uh, biotechnology, makeup as biotechnology, a sort of broad overview of anarcho-transhumanism from Will Gillis, our universities necessary for science. Uh, those are the ones that I remember off the top of my head that we talked about last year. And we did also have a couple of panels that were, you know, kind of like fun tech show and tells. We had a cyborg show and tell where people demonstrated the process of you know, what's involved in putting magnets in your fingertips. And then on the flip side, we had some people who kind of wanted to come and bring sort of dissenting opinions. So talking about like how you uh, might go through a gender transition without using medical technology. Okay. Okay, cool. On that <clears throat> note, clearly a lot of these technologies can help benefit disabled people, but maybe you could expand on why queer and other marginalized folks might be interested in biotechnology. So I think people often ask this question of like, why should marginalized people be interested in biotechnology? And I think I kind of address this above, but basically I think this is the wrong question. Queer and other marginalized people have always already been interested in biotechnology. So I remember one of the most poignant moments for me uh, at last year's event was actually after the event, 
someone came up to me and they were basically like, hey, this was great, but why is this space so white? Like everybody's in there talking about cyborgs, like they're, you know, people with microchips in their hands. But the most cyborg people I know are broke black people who live in the inner city and don't have any institutional access to medicine and they have to DIY everything about their own. Disabled people have been biohacking just to get through their days since the beginning of time. This process of figuring out how to use technological objects in order to interact with a world that is not accessible to somebody with a body like yours is biohacking. I think queer and trans people are constantly hacking our own bodies in order to be visible to each other, um, in order to find some kind of like peace within our own skins and in order to be able to have sex. One of my one of my like ongoing pet theories is that the current political moment in queerness was primarily catalyzed by about 15 years ago it becoming possible to buy black market hormones over the internet. So like young trans people who are interested in and experimenting on their own bodies, that's biohacking. I'm kind of obsessed with this article right now, this Fanny Sosa article called Biohack is Black, where she talks about biohacking as a survival skill of historically enslaved and indigenous people and how our cultural image of the cyborg as white erases the way that modern biotechnology was built on the medical abuse of black people's bodies. And one thing that I keep thinking back on is last year um, at the kind of global community bio summit, which is a this is a, a DIY bio conference that happens at MIT. The one of the keynote speaker there, LaDonna Allard, is one of the water protectors from the Standing Rock Sioux tribe. And she gave a speech in which one of the things she said over and over is that my people have always been scientists. We have this sort of like white colonial post-industrial idea that nature and technology are opposed to each other, but indigenous people have been studying and interacting with the world in these rigorous scientific technological ways since the dawn of time. And I don't know, I just, I guarantee that the questions that marginalized people are asking about the intersection between, intersections between embodiment and biology are significantly more nuanced and rigorous and concerned about harm reduction and political and ethical implications than you know, whatever questions led someone to decide that like cryogenically freezing our heads after death is the technology that we need. So just to circle back, I think this question of like, why should marginalized be folks be interested in biotechnology is really the wrong direction. I think the answer is that marginalized folks are to a great degree experts on biotechnology. I think the real question we need to ask, be asking is why are the people who consider themselves to be self-identified biohackers hyper-focused on what such a narrow band of what biotechnology can actually be and how can we, how can we cut that out? Yeah, fair enough, fair enough. It seems to me that technologies can be used as a weapon for evil when they're in the hands of the state and the corporate world. For example, I think some folks have a legitimate concern about potentially becoming more vulnerable to control as we move away from being hominids and towards becoming cyborgs. How do you deal with this problem? Uh, we get rid of the state and corporations, obviously. <laughs> nice. <laughs> what what, what uh, it, role does technology play in making that happen? I, th I think one thing is, I think in our lifetimes, we've already seen what an incredibly powerful force software has been for reshaping society pretty radically. And I think if we imagine how much more powerful a force biotechnology could be for doing that, then we have to consider that the worst case scenarios for biotechnology falling into the hands of these 
evil institutions are pretty gruesome. And I think anyone that understands that has a moral imperative to prioritize dismantling the kinds of institutions that have shown themselves most likely to weaponize technology in destructive ways. On that same note, and you kind of alluded at this earlier too, but what's the best and worst case scenario for our technological futures? Okay, so as an example, um, but an important one, I think when I'm thinking about dystopian techno futures, I tend to think a lot about the prison industrial complex. I think that prisons are already these giant technological edifices that the state uses to strip people of their bodily autonomy, often in some pretty degrading and humiliating ways. And as our technology becomes increasingly sophisticated in terms of its ability to integrate with human bodies, then what happens when that technology falls into the hands of prison guards or people who design prisons? It's it's pretty nightmarish to think about, which is saying something given how nightmarish the system that we already have is. And so I think as biohackers, if we have any ethical sensibility at all about the possible impacts of our work, then I think we need to be working hard to abolish the prison system as fast as possible. Ultimately, I think biotechnology and the possibilities for what biotechnology can be and do, like the path possibilities for the bad things that biotechnology can be and do, um, is a really, a really driving impetus to pursue like the goals of anarchism. I think that thinking about biotech is the thing that makes me feel the most like the anarchist project is not just essential, but extremely immediate, right? It's not just like, wouldn't it be nice if someday we abolish the state? It's like, we better abolish the state. Like we need to get on that shit now. Uh, <laughs> um, because this stuff is about to get dramatically more disturbing if we don't yeah, yeah. This is always like the other side of the coin when it comes to anarchism. What Do you have any opinions on how it is that we move from where we are now to a free society without the state and corporate domination? I do. <laughs> That's actually a thing I spend a lot of time thinking about. I think that if we want to dismantle those institutions and not have something equally horrendous rise in their place to kind of fill that vacuum, uh, then what we need to do is build systems which fulfill the positive roles that people believe that states and corporations play in their lives. Like when you talk about police abolition to a non-radical person, they tend to say things like, but then who will keep us safe, you know? <laughs> and um, it's usually not enough to answer, like, do police really keep us safe now, you know? Um, like, those are questions you need to have an answer for when you're talking about dismantling corporations. Like, where does the medicine come from is a question that you need to have an answer for. So I think sort of a priority for me has always been anticipating those types of questions and working towards building systems that help people get their needs met without the intervention of states or corporations. I feel like most non-anarchists think that anarchism is all about like breaking stuff, Ina, and to me it's like also about building the systems that will replace the state and that will replace capital 
capitalism as well as building like apparatuses for making things like food and medicine that people need to survive. Beautiful, beautiful. I love it. Before we convince people of how we get from here to there, it's probably important that we explain what there is. And sometimes people have sort of a reductionist definition of anarchism. They say it's opposition to the state and capitalism, but it seems to me that both of you have a broader focus on interpersonal liberties and especially as it relates to how technology can advance agency within within individuals. And I was just wondering if you could, if either of you could tell me what anarchism means to you. I think anarchism means lighting trash cans on fires and shouting, fuck the police. Uh, (laughs) um, So I think for me, and I guess this maybe goes way back to one of your original questions about kind of how I came to radical politics. For me, anarchism has always been interpersonal. Anarcho-transhumanism aside, um, this is probably the place where I feel like I'm kind of the most aligned with Gillis's perspective on anarchism, which is that I think anarchism is less, less a politic and more an ethics. And ultimately what it's about is just like a really, really rigorous investigation of the roots of our relationships to power. And I think that this kind of fractal situation where what you see at this sort of like the 10,000 foot state level and what you see at the the like right here and now interpersonal one to one or like one to two person to person level tend to reflect each other. And I think different people have different strengths and weaknesses and interests um, in terms of looking at the problem at different levels of scale. The first time we talked about this, you know, you asked what my opinion of markets was. And basically my opinion of markets is I'm really glad somebody else is thinking hard about that problem. Uh, (laughs) So I think for me, what anarchism is about is about thinking really, really hard about the problem of power at the level of scale of my relationship to myself and my relationship to maybe like the one person who's in front of me or the small group of people who are interacting with each other. And then maybe thinking a little bit about how the things that I can understand about how power operates by looking at those dynamics might be extrapolable to thinking about questions like how does power operate at the state level or at the level of an economy or, you know, at the level of a larger group society or what have you. And I'm really interested in talking to people for whom like that level of scale is what gets them excited and then figuring out how our different perspectives and experiences can like resource each other. Um, but yeah, for me, anarchism is really ultimately boils down to thinking about how do I, how do I have a life in which I'm not trying to control anybody or trying to be controlled by anybody? Yeah, I really like that. The, the social science that looks at the micro level and also the macro level. And in my experience, a lot of people who aren't anarchists or don't buy anarchism, obviously one of the easiest dismissals is thinking that it's simply just like assholes running around doing violent things because they don't care about anybody. But the other thing is that they look at it as simply as like a utopian end that is never going to actualize. And when you reframe it in the way that you just did as something that happens on the interpersonal level every day with mm-hmm. the person that's right in front of you, then it's a, it becomes a, a more robust philosophy that I think makes it easier for people. It, it, it makes it more complex in some ways, but it makes it easier for people to understand the importance of it. Yeah, and I think that, I mean, you know, as a microcosm of this, 
And like, it's kind of a joke, but not really. Like this issue of how the, the macro and the micro reflect each other. I've tried dating people who aren't anarchists and like that doesn't work. And the reason it doesn't work isn't because we disagree about politics. It's because like the degree of difference between our politics is a reflection of like how differently our philosophies of practice are around how it's ethical to interact with other human beings. So yeah, at this point, you know, you don't need to have read Bakunin or something. But yeah, I, if, if I meet somebody and we aren't pretty significantly politically aligned on some level, then like my intuition is generally like, you might still be a cool person to talk to and I might learn things and like have some of my ideas challenged and we might be able to work together on something, but like we're not gonna be able to really meaningfully collaborate on probably a creative or like significant uh, emotional or political level. Like we're just gonna have like different approaches to like how you should treat people. Right, right. And it's and it's one thing to sort of espouse a certain philosophy and then not practice it, right? You can write, for instance, tomes on queer theory and feminism and, and whatnot, but actually, you know, treat people like shit on a daily basis. And what, is, what does that matter? And on the other hand, it's interesting, you've got people, very decent people who maybe don't subscribe to anarchism, but interpersonally do a way better job of being anarchist than anarchists do sometimes so sometimes it's the other way around also <laughs> yeah absolutely but um let's move on a little bit how would you define transhumanism and what is anarcho-transhumanism so i can say stuff about that so i think that also ties into some thoughts that i have about what anarchism is right so i might backtrack to that for a second if that's okay yeah totally so I think like another way of framing and understanding anarchism, right, is it's like an ethics of, you know, maximizing freedom, right? And then like kind of classical political theory, there's a couple different conceptions of freedom, right? There's like negative freedom, uh, which is usually described as freedom from, you know, which is basically like, like nobody's telling me what to do. I think of kind of like this um, sort of anarcho-primitivist idea that I'm like at my freest if I'm like alone and naked in the woods, like fighting with raccoons for food or something, you know? <laughs> And then there's like a positive freedom, you know, which is usually described as like freedom to, like freedom to do things, you know, which is, I think, kind of more a matter of um, empowering individuals to sort of pursue their like desires, ambitions, dreams, whatever, in spite of like what might be considered realistic uh, given their circumstances, you know? And I think that's another um, important like aspect of anarchism to me. But then I think there's like this other piece. So there's like freedom to do, but then there's also freedom to be and i think that's where anarcho-transhumanism kind of comes into the picture is that not only should i be able to like do what i want but i should like also be able to like be what i want you know and the like physical realization of that to me is this transhumanist ideal that i should be able to have whatever type of body i want to have you know i really like that 
Yeah, one one of the um, principles that transhumanists in general, but particularly anarcho transhumanists, talk about is the concept of morphological freedom, which is essentially the freedom to be embodied in a way that is autonomously defined by the person who is doing the embodying. Yeah, yeah, totally. What do y'all think of transhumanists who aren't anarchists? Well, I definitely wouldn't date one. (laughs) (laughs) I would add to that, kind of related to what you were talking about a minute ago, Joel, about um, there are some people who wouldn't describe themselves as anarchists um, who might be better interpersonal anarchists than people who do describe themselves as anarchists. I think there might well be transhumanists who don't describe themselves as anarcho-transhumanists not because like they don't believe the things that we believe you know but just because like um those words mean different things to them and like i don't necessarily fault them for that i think transhumanists who don't believe the things that we believe i think at best are like like I was talking a minute ago about like the different types of freedom, like I think at best they see like only like a small part of that picture, you know, only a small part of the struggle for liberation, and at worst they're actively hostile towards it. So one of the motivations again behind the event is that I think that within the kind of mainline transhumanist and biohacking and grinder communities, there is a pretty solid vein of just kind of like anti-authoritarian sentiment, which I think is really valuable. But like I said, because uh, I think the overall kind of culture of these spaces is to sort of first and foremost be interested in the tech and then kind of think about the politics as an afterthought. I think that the way that that anti-authoritarian sentiment cashes out is uh tends to be just sort of a bit politically underdeveloped and just ends up with a bit of a libertarian in the pejorative sense kind of like get off my lawn uh (laughs) attitude towards the government you know telling you what you can and cannot like do with your cyborg implant but 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 so again one of the one of the things that i'm interested in doing with this conference is trying to trying to kind of get these folks who are like really interested and conversant with the the technical side of this thing and who have like a, a bit of a like what I I think many of them might even self-describe as anarchists, but like what I uh might describe as kind of like a nascent anarchist sentiment and get them into conversation with people who are anarchists or autonomist or anti-authoritarian people or people with like a, a really considered politics who may have thought about those politics in relation to technology, but what they're lacking is like the actual real hands-on experience with the technology in order to be able to think about how that technology plays out in a, like the details of how that technology plays out within, within their political um, sense. And again, to like get those people in a room together and get them talking. So I'd really like to see the guy who's developing the the cyborg implant and doesn't want the government telling him what he can do with it, and the people who have been thinking really hard about how to dismantle government control and have some sense of that as being as te- of technology as being a piece of that project, but who don't really know much about the technology itself to be able to like to sit down and really like answer each other's questions and kind of strategize together. 
people often make this critique, which is basically like transhumanism is ableist um, or transhumanism is, again, like a bunch of white, rich, mostly men in Silicon Valley who want to be able to live forever. And it leaves out everybody who doesn't have money. And I think that the the scene of people who self-identify as transhumanists does tend to have that demographic, but not because people being able to make choices about their embodiment is like inherently a luxury. Like that that's something that should be available to everybody. So yeah, I mean, I, I guess I guess ultimately the the answer is that I feel the same way about transhumanists who are not anarchists as I do about anybody who isn't an anarchist, which is that either like Sean said, you know, they may have some really solid intuitions and they just don't have the same language of talking about those intuitions that I do, which is really great. Or they have different intuitions than I do about what's ethical to do uh, in terms of how we interact with other human beings. And in that case, whether the way that they're manifesting those ethics is through technology or you know, through bureaucracy or through the economy or whatever. Yeah, we're we're not on the same side. How, how far do you think this transhumanism thing goes? Do you think that we're headed towards a singularity? What, what, what can we possibly expect, you know? I'm not a believer in the nerd rapture. I don't know about Sean. The nerd <laughs> rapture. That's... <laughs> Wow, that's pretty good. I've never heard of that. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, you may have come across this, but there's this pretty amazing tweet that's been floating around for a while um, by Ada Powers about the difference between trans transhumanism and cis transhumanism. Are you familiar with this? I think you told me about it, actually, when we hung out, but <laughs> uh, please say I, it again. I have it right here. I'm going to read it to you. Okay. So the tweet says, trans transhumanists. Oh my God, what if hot swappable body parts, real functioning tails and cat ears, permanently purple hair, cis transhumanists. With this nootropic stack and optimized nutrients, sorry, my tragic meat machine is 8% more efficient at converting calories into JavaScript. <laughs> I, mean, I just love this tweet because it's perfect, but partly I think it's perfect because it captures like a really significant philosophical difference, which is that when we think about transhumanism, people in the... And I don't even want to call it the mainstream transhumanism because I really think that mainstream transhumanism is like a lot of different people coming from a lot of different philosophical backgrounds. And I think there is a a school of thought or a philosophical trust uh, thrust within trans a certain sphere of transhumanism, which is this kind of idea of transhumanism as the transcending of human being and particularly of the human body. And so it's this idea of like, this is the sort of singularitarian, uh, let's all upload our consciousnesses into the clouds, let's escape our stock human tragic meat machines and all become demigods in some kind of, uh, I don't know, like eternal second life sort of universe, which sounds like, I don't want to live forever. And I mean, you know, and no shade of people who live, want to live forever, but like, it's that just, it doesn't, the idea of living forever does not spark joy. But, well, easy for you to say. What if I want to live? Look, if what? you're a deathist and you want to die, that's fine with me. But Good. I want a choice as to whether or not I go. I fully support your autonomy. I think there's this <laughs> other. I think there's this other way of thinking about transhumanism, which is really informed by like a queer gender politics, which is thinking about morphological freedom in the sense of 
not being able to like escape embodiment, but being able to, to be embodied in a variety of ways and to be able to like transition. I think the difference between transitioning and transcending is really significant when we think about possibilities for what transhumanism could look like. And, and yeah, and again, both of those things have their pros and cons, but like to me personally, one of them sounds exciting and the other one sounds exhausting. Uh, and you know, your mileage may vary. Yeah, yeah. So, out if I can, I regarding that tweet, the two perspectives also show kind of like fundamentally different ideas about sort of a, what is the role of technology in our society and like what is the purpose of um, society, you know? The tragic meat machine, 8% efficient at converting colors into JavaScript, just kind of like embodies this amazing caricature of like the protestant ethic and like the spirit of capitalism to me you know it's like what is the purpose of transhumanism to like the slice of transhumanists is like to make us able to work harder for somebody you know it makes me think about the people who like use microdosing lsd to make them better at their jobs Right. <laughs> to which, yeah, like my only response is like, what a waste of good drugs. <laughs> so, like, um, you know, in comparison, I think the like, you know, the trans transhumanist section sort of conceptualizes like, what is the purpose of technology and what is the purpose of society is just to like actually enrich our lives which I think is just a totally different worldview and one that's much more agreeable to me. Same. Yeah, yeah, cool. Well, Frank Miroslav, a, a previous guest on the show, joked about AI actualizing as a transgender cat girl maximizing head pats. What do y'all think about that? I like head pats. <laughs> <laughs> Could you provide some context? <laughs> oh, okay. So, <laughs> honestly, the only reason—the only reason they were joking about it was because he was talking about trolling like NRXers and shit into believing that AI was going to be a transgender cat girl maximizing head pads. This is something that I've heard Gillis talking about, which is that like this idea that people historically had about who comprised of the transhumanist movement, which was largely rich, white, libertarian tech bros, that a lot of those people have kind of jumped ship on transhumanism once they realized that transhumanism necessitates transgender people's freedom to transition. Mm -hmm. uh, and that this just freaked all of them out. And they were like, wait, no, not like that. And now, right, all, right. you know, like trying to start an ethno state or something off somewhere I would also say, as someone who has the misfortune of hearing about a lot of people's startups, <laughs> that like that would be far from the least useful application of artificial intelligence I've heard of. <laughs> Changing a cat girl, maximizing head pats. Yeah. <laughs> Hell yeah. That's the future. It's a future we deserve. <laughs> All right. <laughs> So towards the end of these, I like to give my guests, I like to list thoughts, people, or ideas, sort of a lightning round, and have them respond. Are y'all down to do that? Yeah. Totally. Okay, cool. 
Uh, oh, yeah. Also, try to keep your response to one minute or less, if you don't mind. Sure. All right. Xenofeminism. I inhaled the Xenofeminist manifesto when it first came out. It was one of the most exciting things I had read in a long time. I have since then reread it several times, shared it with a bunch of people I know, and given it to my girlfriend. So I'm, yeah, lots of thumbs up on Xeno on Xenofeminism. Richard Stallman. <laughs> okay, so Richard Stallman. <laughs> I believe that intellectual property is evil so i believe like really strongly in free and open source technologies and i don't think i can like downplay the role that he played in establishing and building that movement that said i'm not really into cults of personality myself and as i understand it He's a guy that's kind of problematic on a couple different axes. So if we were going to choose a standard bearer for the free and open source technology movement, which I don't think we should, it probably wouldn't be him. All right. Swerfs. I think those people can go to hell. I think both SWERFs and TERFs, which stand for sex worker exclusive radical feminists and trans exclusive radical feminists, are um, extremely polite euphemisms for people who are neither radical nor feminists. I think I certainly think that both gender and sex as an activity are elements that are pretty core to questions of bodily autonomy and people who have an interest in restricting other people's autonomy to make choices about their own bodies, regardless of their reasons for doing so, are, again, like, we're not on the same side. Yeah, fair enough. Andrew Yang. My impression of him from his web presence is that he strikes me as what I think of as a technocrat. To me, a technocrat is somebody who believes that social problems have technological solutions, which is something that like, we fundamentally don't believe. The problems we have in our society, I don't think we have because our technology is inadequate. You know, I believe like we have problems in our society because the institutions of our society like have bad purposes, you know, and technology like enables them to fulfill their bad purposes more efficiently. So I don't think that like uh, better technology is going to fix capitalism or like liberal democracy. Problems of oppression and inequality need to be addressed by restructuring our society, not by like introducing new technologies, you know? Yeah, I think actually Sean put it really succinctly to me the other day that much like art, uh, science follows patronage. And the kind of people in our current society who have the resources to be able to patronize science and technology are mostly people who want to do evil, which means that while technology itself is not inherently, despite what, prim what primitivists might tell you, technology itself is not tending towards increasing evil, the majority of the technology that's currently being developed is being developed by evil people for evil purposes. 
can I say I feel a little bad for picking on the primitivists, given that they probably don't listen to podcasts? <laughs> <laughs> They'll never know. <laughs> yeah, and I, also, for what it's worth, and I was, you know, I was hanging out at the Big Idea earlier today, and I was talking to somebody who has a lot of primitivist friends who don't listen to podcasts about this very issue. But like, I actually think that the perspectives of people who are like radically anti-civ are really important to have in this conversation because it's also really important to think about not just what are the liberatory potentials for all of these technologies, but also like, what are the worst case scenarios? Um, what are the the possible nightmares that we need to be thinking about being prepared to respond to. And I think that people whose response to like, okay, these technologies could have really terrible uh, outcomes, so we should just not invent them. I think that that is a, a naive position about technology. But I also think that thinking about the harm that technology can cause in a much more rigorous way than those of us who are a little more like technophilic. I think I think the liberatory potential of technology is so vast that it would be that it's ethically imperative that we develop it. But I also think that it's ethically imperative that every time we develop something new that we ask ourselves the question, what problems does this solution cause? And I am not going to be the best person to answer that question because I'm biased and I need people on my team and in this conversation with me and with those of us who are like doing the encouraging of that development to be like poking holes in the projects and being like, hey, have you considered this terrible thing that might happen? What are you doing about that? So like, I would really like it if the primitivists would come to the conference, even if just to hang around and tell everybody like all the ways that we're wrong. That was a long one minute response. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Black Mirror. A friend of mine describes Black Mirror as basically boomers overblown fears about technology. It's a pretty damn good show, though. It's very well produced. And some of the episodes are interesting and fun. And some of them you're like, really? Some of them, I, I think, like, really have pretty keen insights into where we're headed. I forget the nosedive. Was that the, like, social credit rating episode? Um, yeah. That one certainly spoke to me as, like, not an unreasonable possibility. That reminds me of a conversation we had at our first meeting for this incarnation of Please Try This at Home about, like, how many works of dystopian fiction depict worlds that seem to be, like, in many ways better than the one in which we are living. And, like... <laughs> We came to the conclusion that we're living in um, a very boring dystopia. <laughs> and I think maybe a side project of our conference, if we can't get to utopia or even out of dystopia, we can like at least work on creating a more interesting dystopia to exist in. Ted Kaczynski. <laughs> <laughs> so... One of the things that's in the Twitter discourse at the moment is discussion about whether or not prisoners should be allowed to vote. 
And my favorite tweet that I saw about this was somebody had posted a screen cap from a Fox News broadcast, which had picture of like, it's an image of, this is a real graphic that is actually airing on Fox News right now. And it says convicted felons who would be allowed to vote. And then it has Ted Kaczynski, Scott Peterson, Dennis Rader, the BTK killer, David Berkowitz, the son of Sam, and Terry Nichols. And the caption on this graphic is, these five men are about to change the face of our democracy with five votes in different states. And some anarchist replied, if Ted Kaczynski can run for POTUS, I will vote. Anyway, (laughs) I guess the point is that like, yeah, the Fox News commentators were like, oh my God, if felons could vote, then Ted Kaczynski could vote, to which every anarchist is like, like Ted Kaczynski would vote. Definitely would not vote for Andrew Young. (laughs) Yeah, on that, like, prisoners being able to vote thing, like, I'm not going to pretend for a minute that we don't live in an oligarchy, but I do think that the discourse surrounding, like, extending the right to vote to prisoners is at least going to move the Overton window in a direction that's positive towards people who are behind bars, I think. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, if people are going to be in prison, they should be able to vote. And if we're going to have voting, then people in prison should be able to do it. I think we should get rid of both of those things. But since we have both of them now. Mm. Also, it's like forcing people to like confront the fact that like people in prison are humans, you know, which is something that like most of us don't have to do in our day to day lives. If we don't want to do that, you know, that's like kind of how our uh, carceral system is designed is like to abstract that away from our daily existence for our comfort bringing like really any issue about prisoners right into the forefront i think is making a lot of people say oh shit prisoners are people and they should like probably have some rights another interesting statistic that's come up in the context of this discourse is the prison population in the united states has a population greater than the combined populations of the three least populated states of the union there i saw somebody commenting on twitter like imagine if the u.s prison population had six senators you know (laughs) yeah and i think what i think a thing that it's really important to make explicit here is the the racial demographics of who's in prison right so yes i I think you know as anarchists we like to say if voting made a difference then they would make it illegal and i think that any given individual person voting is you know pretty insignificant but i think that when you take what essentially amounts to the population of three states and you deny them the right to vote and also felons not only don't have the right to vote when they're in prison but they also continue to not have the right to vote after they're out of prison. And so what we're really talking about is a way that that the state has come up with essentially a loophole to like take the vote away from black people as a population. And I think that that is a larger issue and at really something that's worth, you know, thinking about and raising people's awareness about uh, regardless of what we think about it, of the value of our individual votes. I can't remember the last time I voted, but I still think that if anyone has the right to vote, prisoners should have it. Moving towards the last few questions that I have here, a couple of these are from my patrons, and I wanted to make sure that they had their question in the podcast. The first one is, how can I get a cappuccino in your envisioned utopia? 
I think that's uh, an amusing question, right? Because um, some of the projects that like we're concerned with are questions like, how can you like make and get estrogen or insulin? I've never made a cappuccino personally, but I suspect it's like a little bit easier to make than a hormone. <laughs> However, the things that you need are like in some ways the same. You know, you like need some hardware, you need some raw materials, and you need some know-how, you know? And um, the parts of the process that I like to focus on are um, making sure that that hardware is like designed from relatively inexpensive components and that its plans are um, made freely available and the same that um, the know-how, you know, is like transmitted freely and made accessible so really like um that leaves the question of i guess your amino acids and or your coffee beans and milk in cappuccino right which is not a question i have an answer for at this moment i would also add that in my personal utopia there are no cappuccinos the coffee and espresso are always black what (laughs) (laughs) okay all right all right the second patron question is Do either of you have certain ideological foundations separate from transhumanism and queer liberation, such as communalism or individualism? And do you have any interest in sort of classical thinkers such as Perdon, Marx, Tucker, or Adam Smith? I sort of grew up on the 90s internet, and I have gotten most of my political education from reading LiveJournal. I think that my anarchism has developed primarily through conversations with other anarchists and just kind of like the practice of organizing. So I, I've never really read the canon. It's kind of on my infinite to-do list uh, and my like bottomless list of books that I'm going to get around to reading eventually, you know, maybe once we reach our transhuman utopia. Somebody told me at some point that I'm a social anarchist. And so I looked at the Wikipedia page for that the other day, and, you know, it sounds pretty aligned with the way that I think about anarchism, except for that it sets social anarchism up as opposed to individualism. Um, And I also find what I know of individualism relatively compelling. But I think this is all to say that I don't have a, I don't really have a, a dog in the fight in a strong way around like the ideological questions of the, the larger political theory of anarchism. So, yeah, I, like, I also haven't had, like, as much time to read sort of classical political theory as I would like to. I suspect I never will. Um, (laughs) But I have felt affinity with what I've read from Proudhon, from Kropotkin, from, you know, later on, uh, Rocker and Bookchin, um, all, like, in different ways, along with a bunch of others. I liked what Fox had to say, though, because uh, one of the things that I appreciate about anarchism is supposed to say Marxism. It's, like, not named after, like, an old dead dude, you know, 
and um, related to that, like, not all Marxists, I guess, but some Marxists that I've met IRL, like, really think that Karl Marx was the last word on everything, you know? And I'm really glad that that's not the case with um, anarchistic uh, economic and political theory, in part because there were things, you know, technological and societal transformations that have happened in the past, like, 150 years that Proudhon or whomever couldn't have predicted, and, like, contemporary thinkers can respond to that. Also, in part, I'm not convinced that, like, anyone actually enjoys reading, like, centuries-old, like, treatises on political theory. Um, you don't know enough nerds. <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm convinced that they are lying and, like, might fight <laughs> if they say they do. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, like I said, it's, like, cool to, like, acquire the ideas, but trying to, like, parse the language of a 19th century Frenchman who was translated into English isn't, like, my favorite pastime, so... I'm also, like, glad that there's people like Kevin Carson and whatnot who, like, um, kind of update and engage with those works in, like, ways that are more understandable to me as a denizen of the 21st century. Totally. You know, I don't think a podcast episode has gone by without the mention of Kevin Carson yet. I had to go to them somewhere. <laughs> it is ritually necessary. It is like built within the fabric of our anarchist universe that he is mentioned at least one time. We offer our tithe up. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so... What books, websites, organizations, publications, or people do you think folks should check out to learn more about the ideas that y'all are interested in? We have a list. So, like we mentioned earlier, Xenofeminism, A Politics for Alienation, is the Xenofeminist Manifesto by Laboria Cubonics. It is short. You should read it. You should maybe read it twice. So another project that we're pretty into um, that we've discovered uh, relatively recently is the Alternative Limb Project, which sort of lines up with the idea of um, morphological freedom and like a sort of body's vehicle for uh, expression that we've been talking about. And uh, my understanding of it is that it's an artistic exploration of the possibilities for um, prosthetics as like not just things that um, resemble what we understand as human limbs, but as like vehicles give people like the opportunity to have different types of bodies if they so choose. Open source estrogen is kind of a ecosystem of projects. And there are a number of these DIY hormone projects, which range from both, uh, like from the, the side of like people trying to really pragmatically build DIY and at-home solutions for making autonomous choices about their hormone composition to the other side of really kind of pushing the edges. Let's explore this as a kind of political proof of concept art project, but open source estrogen and also what's Ryan Hammond's project? Open, uh, source, gender open source gender codes are some cool projects to check out. 
one of the first projects that really inspired me when I started to get into biohacking uh, was from a group called the Gynepunks, or possibly Gynepunks. I've never heard it said out loud. I've like only seen it in text. And also, I believe most of them were from Catalonia, or at least that's where they were operating when I came across them. And uh, the article that I first read about them described them as the cyborg witches of DIY gynecology. That's a hell of a name. Right? Yeah. Damn. Yeah, I don't need to say anything else about them. <laughs> That's all I can think to know. <laughs> this one is not a project, but more of a concept. But a cool term to search is solar punk and when we were talking about worst case and best case scenarios that we see for uh possible techno futures what i was going to say about the best case scenario is there's a movement and in, and in some ways it's just kind of a an aesthetic envisioning sort of movement called solar punk which is thinking about developing technology in ways that are sustainable that are humanistic that are um, integrated with the world around us in a like an ecologically sustainable way. It's a vision for a brighter future. And I think it's inspiring to think about technology, again, as a possibly a liberatory and not just destructive force. And then the last one, of course, that I think we should mention, and um, you interviewed somebody from this project two episodes ago, I think, is the Four Thieves Vinegar Collective. Um, the Four Thieves Vinegar Collective is a group of mostly anarchist biohackers who are working on a range of projects around essentially DIY pharmaceutical medicine and making medical and pharmaceutical technology accessible to people who need it and may not be able to afford it or may live in places where it's not legal for them to access the medicine that they need. We're big fans of and uh, friends of Michael Lawfer, the uh, anarchist sparkle fairy, <laughs> that bald head with so many sparkles on it i don't know if you interviewed him in person or uh if you got the chance to interview him in person but i'm sure if you did you came away from him from it covered in glitter um <laughs> i think he just like exudes it from his pores <laughs> Mm -hmm. um, oh, and the one other thing that I did want to mention is um, for people who are, you know, all all the politics aside, for people who are just interested in the the kind of like grinder show and tell tech side, there are some pretty cool projects going on around people's self experimentation on their own bodies, and the place to go to find out about that is the biohacking forum, and it's a uh, it's biohack.me. That's kind of the the centralized locale on the internet for uh, grinders and biohackers to hang out and talk to each other about um, biosafe coding and uh, eating bugs and stuff like that. So I got a, just a couple more questions about the event uh, as we close the interview here, and then we'll let you go. Do you all plan on recording the event, and do people just show up to it, or are you selling tickets, or how does this work? So uh, with regards to tickets, we're definitely not selling any. It's totally free to attend. I would encourage people to reach out if they're planning on attending, uh, just because that way they can maybe communicate with us about like what we can do to kind of uh, make the event a better experience for them and like accommodate any specific needs that they might have. Regarding uh, recording, 
We uh, place a lot of value on the privacy of our attendees and our contributors, and I guess the lines between those things are pretty porous. We wouldn't record anyone without their consent, but there has been a lot of interest in recordings or streamings from people who are excited about the event but won't be able to make it to Pittsburgh. So uh, we may reach out on a one-on-one basis to people who are presenting to see if there's something we can do in terms of recording or streaming to uh, make their content accessible to people who can't make it. Okay. Are y'all looking for any help with the conference? And if there is anyone out there who is interested in contributing, what way do you recommend they get in contact with you to do that? We are always looking for people who want to be involved in helping shape the conference. So people who have ideas about content they'd like to bring, sessions they want to present, panels they'd like to see, other people they think we should reach out to. Really, like, we just want to talk to anybody who's interested in talking to us about the event. So they can reach out to us in a number of ways. They can email us at please try this at riseup.net. We have a Twitter, which is at please try at home. You can tell these different iterations of this based on like what usernames are available on what platforms. Um, <laughs> our website uh, is nogodsnoexperts.net or please try this at home.net. We also have a Discord. At some point here, we're going to have a Facebook. However, people want to get in touch with us, they can probably text me over Signal. They can carrier pigeons. Carrier pigeon, Skywriter. Like, just please reach out to us. We would love to talk. If you want to come to the event, yeah, like Sean said, just, you know, we would love to hear from you and try to facilitate that in any way possible. The other thing that people can do if they want to help with the event is hopefully by the time this podcast episode goes out, we'll have a crowdfund page set up. Um, and that's our main source of financial resourcing for the event. We are w- happy to accept your money um, <laughs> and or your ideas. And most importantly, we would love to see people here in Pittsburgh in September. I did have a couple quick uh, addenda to the previous point about getting involved, though. It'd be cool if we could throw it out there that um, like, you don't have to be local to get involved in uh, planning the event there are people who aren't from pittsburgh who are like um active participants through our various technological communication channels and another type of help we would also uh, appreciate is help spreading the word about the event you know whether that's word of mouth or signal boosting via social media or like you know some other kind of communication channels that i'm not aware of <laughs> So it's going to be Saturday, September 14th in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. For those who are listening who are local to Pittsburgh, it's at the Prasad Center, which is uh, in Upper Lawrenceville. And yeah, we'd love to see you there. Hell yeah. Well, I wish you the best of luck. I hope a bunch of people come. And I know that as you continue to do the things you're doing and spread the message of freedom to people and the role that technology plays in that, I think the world's going to be a better place. So thank you all for doing that. And thanks again so much for coming on the podcast. Thank you. Thanks for tuning in to the seventh episode of the show. I hope everyone enjoyed my conversation with Fox and Sean. 
I'd like to once again give a huge shout out to my patrons for helping me keep this thing going. The podcast does take time, money, and energy, and I sincerely appreciate everyone who helps make it possible. If you enjoyed this episode and would like to help financially, please consider becoming a patron at patreon.com slash media. And if you aren't able to contribute in that way, simply liking and sharing these episodes will help more than you know. Thank y'all so much for tuning in. We'll talk to you soon.